The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, For our time this morning, I want to look at a passage in Romans 1 and see if we can understand who it is that God gave up. It said God gave them up. Who is this? Who's he talking about? Now this message comes as a response to some questions we had when we did the message in apparent contradiction and deals with the idea of natural theology. So I'm kind of running off that. Now Romans chapter 1 verses 19 through 23 is known among theologians as the classic passage on natural theology. But my question is, is Paul teaching here that all men are without excuse before God because God is revealed in creation? I don't think so. Look at the text. 119 through 21 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, let me ask you something. Can man come to know God through nature? As man looks at the creation, you stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon or you're standing on the shore of the Atlantic Ocean or you're out in the mountains and just enjoying the beauty that God has made, does man in that situation come to realize there's a God and therefore become without excuse before Him? Is that what these verses teach? That's the common interpretation of these verses. You look at nature, you see the stars, you see what God has made and you say, oh, there must be a God and therefore I'm accountable. Tertullian, the early church father, said, It was not the pen of Moses that initiated the knowledge of the Creator. The vast majority of mankind, though they have never heard the name Moses, to say nothing of his book, know the God of Moses nonetheless. Nature is the teacher, the soul is the pupil. So do men come to know God? (laughs) She's right on time. She doesn't make a sound all morning long, and she waits till I start preaching. You better stop it, okay? I'm not competing with you, I told you. You're too cute. (laughs) Do men come to know God in any way by looking at nature? What about the physicists who study the various aspects of Yahweh's creation? When they see the complexity and awesomeness of God's creation, do they fall down on their knees and worship Yahweh? Well, they do if they're Christians. But if they're not Christians, what they worship is the Big Bang Theory. What a beautiful Big Bang, you know, what a beautiful thing they made. The late author and astronomer Carl Sagan said, the universe is all that ever was and ever will be. As an astronomer, he studied the heavens, and he didn't see the glory of God. He didn't see God at all. Julian Huxley, who was an English evolutionary biologist, said, It's all an accident, all a matter of chance, no reason, no end, no purpose at all. These men didn't just view, they studied God's creation, and they never saw Him or His glory. Natural man says that the matter of which the universe is made somehow over billions of years just organized itself into what we see without any outside assistance or intelligence. It's just this matter decided to, in the explosion, put itself together. And, you know, I, I don't know how people can be that foolish, trying to be nice here. But, I mean, you see a piano and you think there must have been a wood storm in a lumber yard and an elephant was there and they got the ivory and the lumber and it just blew together and we got a nice piano now. Who's going to buy that? Nobody. But this intricate creation came together, nothing. Now, what is called natural or general revelation will not bring anybody to God. Let me just go beyond that and say this. Special revelation will not bring anybody to God. The only way man comes to God is if God draws him to himself. John 6, 44. 
No one can come to me. This is Yeshua talking. Nobody comes. None. Not at all. No one. Unless. So there is an exception. The Father who sent me drags him. That's the word helkuo. It means draw by irresistible superiority. And I'll raise him up at the last day. Someone recently wrote me saying, you use John 6.44 as your end-all verse. No, there, I got a whole lot of end-all verses, okay? A whole lot more I could, I could tell you. And then he accused me of not applying audience relevance because he said, this doesn't apply to us, it only applied to Israel. Well, really? My question to these people that think everything ended in AD 70, you know, or things change in AD 70, so I would ask, is mankind no longer born dead in sin and separated from God? Did that change in AD 70? Did the constitution of man, the nature of man, change at AD 70? So now when men are born, they're born in a relationship with God. That would be universalism, I guess. You know, and Everybody's right with God. Adam was born, fell, and therefore men are born dead in sin. We, we talked about federal headship a few weeks back. Go look that message up if you're interested in that. And men were dead in sin before the Old Covenant was ever put into place. During the Old Covenant, men were dead in sin. And after the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant, men are still dead in trespasses and sin. The nature of man didn't change in AD 70. And if you think it did, then tell me, where does the Bible predict this change or hint at this change that in the New Covenant, in the new heavens and earth, we won't need the Gospel anymore? Did the Gospel change? Were the churches that the Apostle Paul and his delegates all set up during the transition period, did they work to put all those together just so in AD 70 it would all stop? It would all go away? Was the new covenant that contained the gospel to end the very day it was consummated? No. Men are born dead in sin. They're separated from Yahweh. They're that way today. And only if Yahweh gives man spiritual life can they believe in Him. It's not something, it's not an act of our will. It's not a choice we make. It's a choice God has made. Paul told the Gentiles at Corinth, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they're folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The natural person, Sukkakos, is the man without the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you can't understand spiritual things. So, is this verse no longer true? Are people not natural anymore? Are they born spiritual? The man without the Spirit, the unsaved man, he cannot appreciate God's glory through the heavens or through special revelation. God must first effectually call a man, then the man can see His glory in creation and in the Word. How much do dead men see of the glory of God? Nothing. Nothing at all. Okay? 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since the wisdom of God, since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The world did not know God through wisdom. This verse destroys natural revelation, natural theology, the knowledge of God comes only through His propositional revelation. Thomas Aquinas taught that Romans 1 was endorsing Aristotle's pagan theory of knowledge called empiricism. But Romans 1 doesn't teach any such thing. It does not teach that men learn the truth about God or anything else from sensation. Francis Schaeffer warned the church about Thomas Aquinas and nature eating up grace, he called it. By that he meant if you give natural revelation an epistemological inch, it'll displace Scripture. So can natural man, using natural means, derive spiritual truth from nature? No, they can't. And so what, is the, what are these verses in Romans 1 talking about? Well, let's look at them, but let's back up to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now notice that Paul says this wrath is revealed from heaven. Now to understand this, we need to see the parallelism in the language and structure between verse 17 and 18. He said in verse 17 that God's righteousness is being revealed in the Gospel. So in verse 18, we see that God's wrath is also being revealed in the Gospel. Paul's Gospel reveals God's covenant faithfulness which involves the announcement that God will judge the covenant breakers. 
and that the agent of this divine judgment is Yeshua. Romans 1.19 For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now the word for here I think would probably be better in a lot of translations translated because this is the reason for the wrath of God in verse 18. Because what can be known? This is the Greek word ganostas, which means well-known. What can be well-known about God is plain. Phaneros, it means it's made visible, it's made known, it's made obvious to them because God has shown it to them. Now the question we have to ask here is, who is the them? Who did God make Himself visible or known to? Now in the first 17 verses, Paul says you, over and over, referring to the first century Roman Christians. Then he comes to verse 19 and he says them. And then in verse 20 he says they. So who did God make Himself visible to? Who did God make Himself known to? When I uh, taught through through the book of Romans a while back, I said that this was referring to Israel. Okay? Because God had made Himself known to Israel. I think we all understand that. Look at Romans 1.20. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now I ask the question, is it possible that Paul's not talking about physical creation in this verse? We see creation and we right away think of physical creation. The Greek word here for creation is katesis. And at times it's used of the creation, but it's also used for mankind. So it's possible that the word katesis doesn't always mean physical creation. It's sometimes used for men, but is it here? Well, 13 years ago, when I did teach through Romans, I can't believe it's been that long, I used Katesis here to refer to Israel. But I no longer think that. Why? Well, two things changed my mind, okay? One of them being an understanding of the divine counsel viewpoint, okay? Learning that changed the way I thought about some things. The other thing being my understanding of what was called the gospel and the stars. So let's start with the second view. Now, if you're not familiar with this idea of the gospel and the stars, I have several messages on the website. Go there, look them up. I know we got a lot of new people watching us. We've our subscription, our subs have grown by over 2,000 in just the last couple months. So there's a lot of new people watching. So if I say something you don't understand, if you go to the website. You can go to the search engine on the website and search it, and you'll find the messages that I've done more in depth and get caught up to speed with us. All right, literally this reads, For the invisibles of Him from the creation of the world, the made has clearly understood being discerned. Now the word made here is poema, and it means a product, a thing that is made, workmanship. This, this word is only used twice. It's used here, and it's used... In Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Yeshua. Workmanship is poema. Now, we as believers are a direct creation of Yahweh. And so also, I think, and I think it's what he's talking about here, is the zodiac. Now, I believe that the constellations of the zodiac, they're signs that point to the Messiah and His death on the cross. How has God made His eternal power and divine nature clearly seen? I think He's written it in the stars. Now, you say, well, how in the world are we supposed to see that? Well, it's like reading. You have to be taught. And you'd have to be taught these constellations in order to understand them. And the book of Enoch tells us that an angel revealed the constellations to Enoch. All right, I say, I'm talking Enoch. That's pseudepigrapha. People lose their mind when you mention the pseudepigrapha, okay? So let me just explain to you. I don't think this is, is the Bible, okay? It is, it is literature that the people who wrote the Bible knew and used, all right? So to understand Second Temple literature helps us get into the actual context of the writing of Scripture and what, what these people were thinking, what they understood. So I'm going to quote several books from this, the pseudepigrapha this morning, so don't, don't lose your mind, just understand. I'm not saying it's Scripture, I'm saying Scripture learned, the writers of Scripture use this literature, all right? This is the context of the Bible. The book of Enoch states that, uh, it says, uh, 
Barakajil taught astrology and Kekebel the constellations. And like I said, th- this makes sense because knowledge of those constellations would have to have been special revelation. Because, you know, if you go out in the star, you know, we've heard of the constellations, you've probably been to the planetarium, you look up and you see those, okay, I can see the little dipper, the big dipper, but, you know, look over, oh, that's Virga, that's the Virgin. Well, how do you get a, how do you get that out of there, you know? Or there's Leo the Liner. How do you get that? You would never understand. It had to be taught. And so it was taught, I think. I think the early people were taught these things and they understood it. The Bible says that God taught the gospel to Abraham. And he, he brought him out. He had him look at the stars. It's just, I think there's something there. The Bible tells us that Yahweh named the stars in Psalm 147.4. It says He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. So the stars all have names, and their names have meaning. The star and the constellation names have been handed down from antiquity. And you go to any civilization, they have a name that's all this, a different name, of course, for their language, but they're all talking about the virgin. It's all a language that reports. They all understand this. And this knowledge may have come down from Noah or even from Adam. The names of the stars have retained their meaning in these various languages. So when we look at the ancient names, we see the gospel is laid out in the stars. And like I said, if you want to more in-depth this, go to the website. I've done some messages. We went into depth on the constellations and how they got this. And I think, you know, speaking of these, the zodiac and the constellations, I think this is how David said, the expanse is declaring the work of his hands in the New American. The ESV says it this way, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, the word expanse and the <clears throat> New American and sky here, I think, are both not really good translations. The Hebrew word here is rakia. And rakia means a dome, a crystalline, solid dome that proclaims God's handiwork. <clears throat> Complete Jewish Bible puts it this way The heavens declare the glory of God. The dome of the sky speaks of the work of his hands. So, biblical cosmology is a flat earth. <clears throat> with a dome over it. Whether you like it or not, that's what the Bible teaches. Okay, I'm sorry. Again, if you want more study on this, go in and just look up Rakia or look up Dome and you'll find messages I've done on this that uh, explain my view there. But believers, if the earth is flat and has a dome over it with the sun, moon, and stars in it, wouldn't that proclaim Yahweh's handiwork? I mean, how can anyone realize there's a dome over a flat earth and not understand that somebody made this. This is not the view of an explosion that all these... And I think that's why <clears throat> our society works so hard at hiding this, because they want to hide God. Because you got a flat earth with a dome, and the stars in that dome, and the sun and the moon, you just... Somebody created this thing, okay? Somebody created this terrarium snow globe that we're in, all right? And that's Yahweh. Genesis 1 says that the stars are in the rakia. I think that David is referring to the dome that contains the zodiac. And, and you, know, you look up at the stars, and if you understood what those stars are proclaiming, it declares the glory of God, because it talks about the gospel. The word zodiac means path or way. The zodiac is the stages of the sun's path through the heavens in 12 months. I think that Psalm 19 is referring to what some have called the gospel in the stars. God's glory is seen in the zodiac because it tells the plan of redemption. I believe that the Zodiac, which is in the Rakia, proclaims the Gospel. Now, His eternal power and divine nature, it says, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So how have His eternal power and divine nature been clearly seen? Well, they've been seen, they're always seen, through the Zodiac. All right, It's like looking at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel the vault of heavens declares the story about God and His redemption for His people. And it's to understand it is a beautiful story. Now it says, for although they knew God, okay, who knew God? Who was He talking about? Now this, you know, you're reading through this and you're like, somebody, they knew God, and He's not talking about Christians here that they, they came to know Him. This is people who somehow had some kind of relationship with God. They knew Him. In the original study, I said it was Israel and only Israel that knew God. Because, well, verses like Psalm 147, 19 and 20. He declares His word to Jacob 
his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise Yahweh. So Yahweh gave Israel, and only Israel, the feast days, the statutes, the covenants, the ordinances, the fathers. He didn't give this to any other nation. The other nations were ignorant of God unless they came and learned through Israel. So this is true. But was Israel the only people that ever did know God? Well, we know that Adam and Eve knew God, right? They dwelt with God in Eden, in the temple of God. But because of their sin, they got kicked out of Eden. Now, I used to believe that once that happened, once God put them out of Eden, the communication with man and God ended, and that was it until Abraham. So we got a long period of time that God doesn't talk to anybody, doesn't deal with anybody. It really doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it. But even though man is removed from the garden temple, Yahweh's still communicating with them. Notice these three important verses. Uh, Genesis 5.22 says, Enoch walked with God. 5.24, Enoch walked with God. Genesis 6.9, Noah walked with God. Now that's a pretty significant phrase. It's only used three times in the Bible. When God walks with men, it's a really rare thing. Now the first occasion of this was in Genesis 3. It says, Yahweh God walking in the garden. So Adam's in the garden. Adam walked with God in the garden temple, and walking with God would depict a divine encounter, a direct relationship. And sometimes we think, or at least I did, that people from Adam to Abraham were ignorant of Yahweh and His ways. But these men walked with God. They knew Him. They knew God. Now, uh, Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Where did God take him? Shut that guy up. Where did God take him? There's disagreements on this, believe me, like anything about the Bible, okay? But here's, here's my picture. All right, God and Enoch, they're walking together, they're fellowship, and they're having a great time, so God takes them. Takes them where? Well, I think He took them to be with them. If you're having a good time fellowship, I'm enjoying this fellowship so much, let me take you somewhere where I have nothing to do with you. Does that make any sense? But people say, well, he, can't have, he couldn't have gone to heaven because man didn't get to heaven until the Lord. Listen, God can do whatever He wants to do, okay? And the general rule is, yes, men don't go to heaven until the Lord returned, all right? But if God's having a good time of fellowship and He wants Enoch with Him, guess what? Enoch can go with Him. And I, I just, that just makes sense to me, you know, maybe... <clears throat> Come and understand the divine counsel view also helped me change my view of Romans 1 because Israel was not the only people to know God. So let's, let me take a brief run through history here. And uh, in the creation account, we know that God creates Adam, right? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. All right. Now, we are created... And a better translation here would be as the image of God, not in. This means that we are divine representatives. We are to represent God. We are to do what Yahweh wants us to do as if He were physically present with us. So Yahweh creates Adam, and according to Job, Adam had access to the divine counsel. Job says this in Job 15, 7 and 8. Are you the first man who was born? Uh, literally translated, this would read, were you born before Adam? All right, he's asking Job this question. Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in on the divine counsel of God? So he's asking, have you been in the council? The first man, Adam, listen, was in Eden. Eden was God's temple, his throne. His divine counsel dwelt there with him. Adam was in this intimate relationship with Yahweh. And then Genesis 3.8 says, and they heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh, God among the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the garden of God. They dwelt in His presence. Eden was where Yahweh lived and made His decrees. It was His, his heavenly hosts were there with Him, who existed before humanity did. This is the divine council. This is the family of God. 
And Adam was there with him. Now, I know there's a lot of people who don't understand this whole thing of the divine council and other gods. Again, I encourage you to go to the website. Uh, go to the studies page on the bottom. It says divine council. There's 17 messages there on this issue so you can get a, a better perspective of what we're talking about here. All right, so after God brings him into the family and into his presence, what happens next? God gives him how many commands? One, just one. Wouldn't you like to have just one command? <laughs> hey, don't eat this tree. Ah, I don't like that stuff anyway. You know, I'm, I'm good. Okay. No, because if there's a, something you can't have, that's what man wants. Okay? He wants So man sins, all right? He's tempted, he sins. Now the question is, who tempted him and why? People say, oh, it was a snake. Really? I think Genesis 3, we see one of the watchers, a divine council member, a god, the lesser god, tempting man because they wanted to get rid of him. See, God had made man vice-regent with him, and some of the watchers were not too happy about this. You know, they're there as a family dwelling, and you say, so there's sin in the temple of God? Well, these watchers had a problem, okay? They did not like man being there. So we see here that it was a serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? So it's the serpent who tempted them. That we know. What we don't know is, what is the serpent? People say, oh, it's a snake. Really? Think Eve would have said, sit there talking to a snake? That doesn't make a lot of sense, right? I believe the serpent was a divine being. Not a member of the animal kingdom, but a member of the divine council. Serpent is from the Hebrew word nachash, which is most likely a triple entendre, which is a word or phrase that has three meanings at once. So if you take nachash as pointing to the noun, the word would mean serpent. If you take it pointing to the verb, it would mean a deceiver or diviner. And as an adjective, it would mean bronze or shining one. Now here's interesting. Luminosity is a characteristic of divine beings in the Hebrew Bible and in the A&E text. You know, you heard the story, you see an angel and his clothes are bright, you know, and you see that, that's luminosity, that's a divine being. Now, this watcher chose to oppose Yahweh's plan for humanity by prompting humans to disobey Yahweh. So they would either be killed, you know, they didn't want him in the garden, so maybe God will kill him, or God will remove him from Eden, away from Yahweh's counsel and family. So what we have in Genesis 3 is a divine being, not an animal, a throne room guardian, a seraph, a, ser a serpentine being, who was part of the divine council in Eden. He decides to deceive humanity, to trick them, to get rid of them, to get them out of Eden, from Yahweh's council, from his family. Why? Why did he want to do that? I think the scriptures hint at pride or jealousy. They just, they didn't like man being in there, in their presence, Okay. Now, the pseudepigrapha work, yeah, here we're going to the pseudepigrapha, okay, because it tells us some things. In the book called Life of Adam and Eve, it elaborates on the motive and role of Satan in the fall of humankind. Chapter 14 states this, And Michael went out and called to all the angels, Worship the image of God as the Lord God has commanded. Man is the image of God, okay? Christianity has no idols because we are the image of God, okay? We are God's representatives. So they wanted him to worship man. And Michael himself worshiped first. And then he called me, and I think this is referring to Satan, worship the image of the Lord God. And I answered, it is not for me to worship Adam. And since Michael kept urging me to worship, I said to him, why do you urge me? I will not worship an inferior, younger being than I. I am his senior in the creation before he was made I already I was already made. It is his duty to worship me. When the angels who were under his, under me heard this, they refused to worship him. And Michael said, "Worship the image of God, but if you will not worship him, the Lord God will be angry with you." And I said, "If he be angry with me, I will set my seat above the stars of the heaven and will be like the highest." Does that sound familiar? Where does that come from? Isaiah, Isaiah 4.13 4, says this, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. This is 
let's say this is Satan talking here, all right? We'll get back to that in a minute. Well, the devil is seen explaining to Adam in chapter 16 of the life of Adam and Eve. So the devil's talking, and he said, And the Lord God was angry with me, and banished me and my angels from our glory. And on your account we were expelled from the abodes into this world and hurled to the ground. Straight away we were overcome with grief, since we had been robbed of such great glory. And we were grieved when we saw you in such joy and luxury. And with guile I cheated your wife, and through her action caused you to be expelled from your joy and luxury, as I have been driven out of my glory. Now the book of Enoch attributes the temptation of Eve to Gadriel. Here it's attributed to Satan. They're the same person, just different names, okay? So in Genesis 3, the Nakash, the serpentine, shining one, deceiver, was in the Garden of Eden with Yahweh. He walked with Yahweh. Now notice what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 28. Were you in Eden, the Garden of God? Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. Crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, you were, they were prepared. Now, these stones elsewhere in Scripture describe the brightness of Yahweh's throne. So this is a throne room scene. Eden, he's in Eden, he's in the temple of God. Whoever this is talking about is in the throne room there. Now, I think we learned something about the fall of Satan in the passages of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But now here's what we have to understand. The passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel are about evil, tyrant kings. In Isaiah 14, he's talking to the king of Babylon. And in Ezekiel 28, he's talking to the king of Tyre. And, and the pride of these men is described in terms of an ancient story about a divine being who fell from paradise due to his rebellion and his pride. So I think he's telling the story here about Satan, but he's directing it towards these kings. These accounts reference Eden directly in Ezekiel's case and indirectly in Isaiah's case. Now, the being talked about in Isaiah and Ezekiel was in Eden. He's a member of the divine council. So this being tempts man, man sins, he falls and is removed from Yahweh's temple. He's put out of the garden. But the next thing that happens is we have a promise from God. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelum, the first gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So he's telling us here that Eve's seed, a human being, is going to come and fix what Adam had done. A deliverer, is going to come. And I believe that once this announcement was made, okay, now that the, these fallen beings, these gods are upset, okay, God's going to fix this, it, so what we did really didn't work. So I believe in an attempt to stop the seed of the woman, a group of these watchers left heaven, cohabitated with women in an attempt to corrupt the human line. Well, this woman can't, this, the Messiah cannot come through a woman if this line is corrupted. And we see that in Genesis 6, 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters of men were born to them, the sons of God. Those are B'nai Elohim, those are divine beings. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. These are gods, these are angels. They're up in heaven, they're looking down and saying, well, those are some hot-looking women down there. And they took as their wives those they chose. So they came down, they intermarried with these women, they produce an offspring, <clears throat> so the watchers got man kicked out of the garden temple and now they're trying to keep a redeemer from bringing them back into the temple so even though man is removed from the temple Yahweh is still communicating with man All right, still somehow there's communication going on here and sometimes like I said we think that people from Adam to Abraham were ignorant of Yahweh and his ways but somehow there was communication they knew him several beings that you know we saw Enoch they knew God. They walked with God. Noah did that. Look at this passage. Genesis 7, 1 and 2. Then Yahweh said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in the generations. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and its mate. Is anything in this strike you as interesting or out of place?
we got clean and unclean animals. The law hadn't been given. It won't be given for 1,400 more years. But how do they know what's clean and unclean? These men obviously knew God. That God had been communicating with them. They were in a relationship with God. And so Noah knows what to take, what are clean and what are unclean, before the law is ever given. So Enoch and Noah, they're, Yah- they're Yahweh's prophets, according to Jude and Peter. Jude says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. So Enoch was a prophet. Peter says, Noah, a herald of righteousness. So, as the earth population grows, after the fall of man in Genesis 3, after the angelic incursion in Genesis 6, God is still reaching out to man. He's trying to communicate with them. But men just keep getting worse and worse, and the rebellion just continues to grow. Man begins to worship these watchers, instead of the watcher's creator, Yahweh. And this rebellion culminates in the building of the ziggurat at Babel, Genesis 11, 8 and 9. Then Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there was there Yahweh confused the languages of all the earth, for, and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So they're trying to build this ziggurat, And the ziggurat is an attempt to get to God, to reach heaven, to bring God down on our level. And so just man is a mess. You know, God has dealt with man, and man just keeps getting worse, and he's a mess. And they're in rebellion against God. And and so God judges them. They'll not follow Him, so He disperses them. And at this point, what God does is He basically says, okay, I'm tired. I'm sick of you people. You won't listen. I'm done with you. Get out of here. I'm no longer your God. And he appoints these lesser gods, these watchers over them to be their gods because he's just done. Okay? And in Deuteronomy 32, it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Okay, this is talking about what we just read, all right, in Genesis 11. He's giving the nations their inheritance. This is what you get. When he divided mankind, he divided, separated the languages they couldn't talk, so they divided them up in different locations. He fixed the borders. In other words, where these people live, he fixed the borders according to the number of the sons of God. B'nai Elohim, these are gods, alright? Now, if you have, some of the Bibles say uh, sons of angels, or they, they use angels in there, and it's not, that's not a really, or no, it says sons of Israel is what it says. Okay, and sons of Israel is not a good translation. It comes from older texts. See, what happened in, when they got the Septuagint and from Qumran, they found manuscripts from Deuteronomy in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, and they, they have this text as sons of God. And it only makes sense when you understand that Israel wasn't even in existence when, this, when he's talking about this in Genesis 10. So in Genesis 10, we have what's called the Table of Nations. These are the nations that are in existence, and Yahweh divides Noah's descendants into 70 different nations. This is recorded in Genesis 10.32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So Genesis 10 is the background of Moses' statement in Deuteronomy 32.8 that Yahweh is responsible for the creation and placement of these nations. Hebrew goyim. In fact, variations of the same Hebrew word parad, separate, are used in both Genesis 10.32 and Deuteronomy 32.8. So the idea that the separation of mankind into 70 nations at the Tower of Babel was by and for the angelic sons of God is supported by the ancient book of Jasser. Well, Jasser is mentioned in Joshua 10.13. It says this is not written in the book of Jasser. In 2 Samuel 1.18 it says it is written in the book of Jasser. Jasser begins a pseudepigraphal work. Jasser 9.31 says, And they built the tower in the city. And they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the seventy angels who stood most foremost before him, to those who were near to him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. So they, God confuses the language. They can't work together anymore. So they spread out. God spreads them out over the known territory there. Now, if in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was indeed referring, referencing Yahweh's separation of the nations according to Noah's offspring, specifically their physical separation at the Tower of Babel, 
It's important to note that Israel is not listed in the index of the 70 nations found in Genesis 10. And you know, Israel's not found there because they don't exist. Okay, Israel doesn't come into existence until we get to chapter 12, and God calls Abraham because he's tired of everybody else. All right, so to say children of Israel here instead of sons of God was, is just really out of place. Okay, what happens at Babel is man's disobedience causes Yahweh to divide them up and put, them, put these lesser gods over them. They were to worship these lesser gods because Yahweh says, I'm done with you. So man continues to reject Yahweh and serve other gods. So Yahweh gave them up. And the next thing that happens is 12, he calls Abraham. All right, now God says, I'm done with you. You other gods take these people. I'm not their God anymore. All right, and if you're reading familiar with the scripture, you'll, you'll hear over and over, Yahweh, the God of who? Israel. Because God's not the God of those nations. He put them away. I'm done with you. I'm done with these, th- these people. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, in, in the pseudepigraphal works, it talks about Abraham being a worshiper of Abram, being a worshiper of God before God ever called him. In other words, he was a faithful man of God when God called him, so whether that's true or not, we don't know, but that seems to make sense. God spoke to him, and he automatically, yep, listened and did what he was told. So he calls Abraham, and God basically starts all over with Israel as his people, just Israel. He starts a new family. He's turned over the nations to the lesser gods who, in fact, really work for him. They're under his control, and he someday he's going to call these nations back. But now, because of their sin, he turns away, and he calls Abraham. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, these, these two verses are fundamental in understanding the worldview of Old Covenant Israel. He says, it says, the Lord's portion is his people. That's Israel. Jacob, that's Israel, his allotted inheritance. All right, very important verses. They explain both the existence of foreign pantheons and the inferior, their inferiority to Yahweh. Now, commenting on Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9, John Walton writes this. He says, these verses are intended to contrast the fact that the Lord has set Israel apart unto himself from among all the nations, and Israel is not numbered with them. The nations have their own gods who are mortal. They do not have Yahweh, who alone does not die, is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Okay? So he's, he, that's it. They got their gods. God starts alone with Israel. Israel is his portion. The word portion here is the Hebrew helek. It's a noun related to nachal, which is the word inheritance, and nachalah. Now in verse 9, clearly presents the nation of Israel, later called Jacob, as allotted inheritance of Yahweh. Okay, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, Israel, his allotted inheritance. The inheritance of the nations was the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. The point of verse 8 and 9 is that sometime after God separated the people of the earth at Babel and he established where on earth they're going to be located, he then assigned each of these 70 nations to a fallen son of God who were 70 in number. Now, according to Deuteronomy 4.19, this giving up of the nations was a punitive act. And I think we understand that because of their sin, he just gave them up. Look at Deuteronomy 4.19. Now here, he's talking to Israel. Beware, lest you rise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that Yahweh your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole earth. So the hosts of heaven here are sentient created beings. These are gods which reside in the heavens. Notice that it says the host of heaven have been allotted to the peoples. All right? Israel's not to worship them. The word allotted here is the Hebrew halak, which literally means apportioned or assigned. They're told that Yahweh has assigned the host of heaven to the peoples of the earth, meaning non Israelites. So he's telling Israel here don't you worship them. They're not for you, they're for the nations. Israel's not to worship the watchers. Now, speaking of the judgment that was to come upon the disobedient Israel, Moses says this in Deuteronomy 29, 
All the nations will say, why has Yahweh done this to the land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, it's because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which He made them, and He brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and who had not been allotted to them. So Israel's worshiping these gods that were allotted to the nations, and so God's anger is just manifesting towards them. He says, Therefore the anger of Yahweh was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. Well, in chapter 28, he lists all these curses. And they're pretty nasty. If you go through and read them, this is what's going to happen. But they worshiped the gods that they weren't supposed to. They weren't allotted to them. They were allotted to the nations. So at the Tower of Babel, Yahweh's done with the nations. They want to follow and serve the watchers instead of Yahweh, so he gives the watchers over to these nations. In chapter 12, he calls Abraham. He starts all over, and from here on, he keeps saying, the God of Israel, not over those nations. Now, as we come to the New Testament, we see in Acts 2 at Pentecost that God begins to reclaim all the nations for himself. When he called Abraham, he told Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. So in the very beginning, even when he calls Abraham, he goes, we're going, to, we're going to help those people too, the ones we got rid of. We're going to call them back. And that's what he does in Pentecost. He begins to call back the nations so he had, he had not abandoned them forever to the watchers. And in Luke 10.1 he says, And after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town, place where he himself was to go. Now, the ESV here says 72. That comes out of the Septuagint. The Masoretic text has 70. So whether it says 70 or 72, it's, it's, a, it's, it's telling us this, this number is keying in our minds that God is going back to the gods and the 70 of them, and we're bringing back these 70 nations. It's a key phrase. That wants, the writer wants to let you in on what's actually happening here. So whether, whether you follow Septuagint in 72 or Masoretic text of 70, it doesn't matter. They're, they're keying the same thing. All right. Since Luke viewed the gospel as God's plan for reclaiming the nations, he disinherited at Babel. The number of disciples here in Luke was sent to match the number of the nations to reinforce that symbolism. I'm 70 out, the 70 nations we disinherited. The number 70 has great theological significance in the context of the Canaanite religion. Ancient Ugaritic text provides evidence that the Canaanites believed there were 70 sons of El, God, For the Israelites, the number 70 was symbolic of Yahweh's choice of them as chosen over the nation. So God got rid of the 70 nations and He chose Israel. So that was a symbolic number for Israel. So Yahweh's inauguration of the kingdom meant that these 70 disinherited nations were being reclaimed. Sending out the 70 disciples expressed this theological message. He says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now in conjunction with the successful mission of the 70, Yahweh declares the expulsion of Satan from God's presence. Satan is being defeated. The nations are being made part of the kingdom of God. And all these gods that were over these nations are going to be defeated also at this time. All right. But that is a backstory. Back to Romans, okay? one twenty-three, And it says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, this is, I believe, a picture of before Genesis 12 that these men who should have known God and could have known God, they, just, they were worshiping these other gods. Now the darkness and ignorance of unbelieving man resulted in them creating their own God. And the reference here, some have said, well, this is referring to Psalm 106, which is a reference to Israel's sin in making the golden calf. We know that was a sin, but I think this goes back to prior to that time, back before Genesis 12, when men was just turning from God before God judged them. And it says, therefore God gave them up. I think this could be Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. He just got to the point where you know, they wouldn't stop sinning, so God gave them up. He gave the nations over to the watchers. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor of their bodies among themselves. God was just done with them. 
and he gave them to these false gods who were who were evil. And Psalm 82 tells us that these gods are, will be would be judged, and they were judged, I believe, at the return of Christ. Now, he says because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Okay, they just they knew God. They didn't want to worship Him. They worshipped these other gods, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. The creature are these gods that God made. God made these other gods. He's over them, but they want to worship and serve them. Now, you know, we could certainly say that verse 25 is something true of men in all ages, you know. People who know God, Christians, turn away from Him. Adam did this. His descendants did this. So did Israel. People who knew God walked away from Him. This teaches us, I think, that without the Lord Yeshua as our Savior, none of us would ever live up to the desires of Yahweh. Without Yeshua, we all tend to worship and serve the creature. Thank God for a Savior who saves completely, and it's Him who delivers us, not ourselves. So Romans 1, I don't think, has anything to do with natural theology. It's about early man's abandonment of Yahweh and their judgment because of it. Now, this is a, an incredible story that helps us understand a lot of the Bible if we understand this. They knew God, they'd been given the gospel and the stars, but they turned away and worshipped the creature rather than the Creator. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us, Lord. I thank You that You called us to be Your children, and that You alone who provide for us. I thank You that it's in Christ that we are redeemed and we share His righteousness, Lord. Father, I pray that our lives would be a testimony to You and who You are, that we would be good image bearers, Lord, reflecting Your glory in the things we say and the things we do, that people, we would help point people to who You are and Your love for man. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen.